Welcome again to King's Cross. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Um, we're in Genesis chapter 22 this morning, so you can go ahead and be turning there. We are uh, on the third Sunday of Advent, this time that we set apart in the, the Christian calendar, the Christian year, to look back to the first coming of Christ uh, as a baby born in Bethlehem and to look forward to his future coming as the glorious reigning king. Uh, we're in the third week of Advent. We're in the fourth week of our Advent sermon series because we got a bit of a head start. And throughout these weeks, we've been thinking about this theme that God comes to us, which is at the heart of Advent. It's also at the heart of the whole Bible, that, that God created humanity to be in a relationship with him, and we rejected him. We turned away from him, but he did not leave us uh, to the, the consequences of our choice, but rather he's been chasing after us since the moment that humanity sinned. And so we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that God comes to us in our shame. Adam and Eve sin against God, and they realize that they're naked, and they become ashamed, and God uh, comes after them and says, where are you? And he seeks them, and he, he makes a sacrifice for them, and he covers them and covers their shame. We saw two weeks ago that God comes to bless us. Uh, he comes to Abraham. But from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, everything's just getting worse and worse and worse. And in Genesis 12, he calls this man Abraham, Abram at the time, and he says, I, I'm, I'm going to bless you. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Uh, you didn't deserve this, but I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your, I'm going to give you offspring, I'm going to bless your offspring, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Last week, uh, we saw that after coming to Abraham several times, he comes to Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was cynical, who didn't believe that God could do what he said that he would do, and yet in his grace, he comes to the cynical. This morning, we're going to see that God comes with the sacrifice. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and took his son Isaac. And he split wood for a burnt offering, and he set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father, he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together, and when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, and he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> it's one of the most harrowing stories in the Bible. It's a haunting story. It's, it's troubling. 
Uh, there's a reason that I emailed you yesterday and said, if you have elementary age kids coming to the service, you may want to think about doing something else with them. There's some stories in the Bible that are, that are better read at an older age. It's a story that, if misunderstood, could do much more harm than good. Uh, I had a loved one who was, did not, was not a Christian, did not believe in any sort of God, and I remember having a conversation with him once, and, and one of the things that he pointed to to defend his unbelief was this story. He said, can you imagine a God so horrible that he tells people to sacrifice their children? He said, this is, this is the kind of thing that faith makes people do. They think that God tells them to do horrible things, and, and they defend it by saying, God told me to do this. I think this is a, a grave misunderstanding of the story. And indeed, I think that if we mine this story, if we dig into it, we will find treasure. We will find pure and refined gold in this text that not only points us to the character of God, but empowers us to respond rightly to his character. Just two points in this sermon. First, Abraham's test, and second, God's test. First, Abraham's test. Background, which I've already alluded to this morning, is the promise. God comes to Abraham. He promises to bless him. He promises all these things, right? He says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless all the world uh, through your offspring. But, but all of these promises are dependent on one specific promise, namely, I'm going to give you a son, and this is a big promise because Abraham is really, really old as his, his wife. They're decades past childbearing age. But God comes to him nonetheless. He promises this in Genesis 12, 15, 17. And again in Genesis 18, he comes to Sarah and says, I'm, it's, it's not going to be through another wife that Abraham has a child. It's going to be through you. God has made crystal clear this promise to Abraham. I am going to make you into a great nation, and I am going to do it through a son that you and Sarah will have. And we get to Genesis chapter 21, and the promise is fulfilled. And Sarah miraculously has a child, and they name him Isaac, the son of the promise. Through him, God will make Abraham into a great nation, a nation through which all the people, all the ethnicities, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And into that context comes this shocking, terrifying, confusing, horrible command Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. Now, here's the, the great paradox of Genesis 22 is that God's command will undo God's promise. It, it, God commands something, and if Abraham is obedient to it, it's going to undo God's promise because God has said it's through Isaac that I'm going to make you into a great nation. Isaac's still a kid. He doesn't have children of his own. That, like He is the, the hope. And so if Abraham sacrifices him, then God's promise is gone. Obedience to God's command will undo God's promise. And we should just stop here early in the sermon and say, maybe you can identify with that feeling. Maybe you can identify with the feeling that, that I believe that if God wants anything for me, he wants to bless me. He wants me to have a good life. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to be satisfied and fulfilled. But obedience to his commands at times seems like it would directly contradict that desire for blessing. And we can feel like if we were to obey God, it would take away the, the vision that we have for a blessed life. And so we often withhold obedience to God because we do not understand how, and thus we do not believe that obedience would not take away the blessing. And I have no doubt that this may be where some of you are this morning thinking, God, God says he wants to bless me, he wants to give me joy, he wants to give me peace, but how am I supposed to have that kind of life if I don't keep working 70 hours a week? 
Like if I don't keep you know, burning myself into the ground and neglecting my kids, how are we going to have enough money to have a satisfying life? God commands holiness. You know, in, in our day and in our age, uh, there, there's little that we identify more with flourishing than sort of sexual liberation and, and the ability to like just follow our own desires wherever they may lead us. And then we look at God's word and it commands the type of holiness that would require us to deny some of our appetites and desires. And we think, how can I, how can I be blessed and at the same time deny parts of me that seem so essential to who I am? We think, oh, you know, God says to forgive everybody. If I forgive that person and let him or her back into my life, how could I possibly be blessed? What if they hurt me again? If I give generously and sacrificially, if I, you know, Ephesians 5, God tells husbands, uh, or Paul, God through Paul tells husbands, lay down your life for your wives. Love them the way that Christ loved the church. If I lay down my life and all my desires and preferences to serve my wife, how, how do I know that it's not going to go horribly for me? And the counterpart, wives, submit to your husband as the church to Christ. How do I know that if I submit to my husband, it won't go horribly for me? Won't obedience to the commands of God totally undo his promise to bless me? True faith, we see in Genesis 22, like the faith of Abraham, holds together the paradox of complete obedience to God's commands and this unrelenting faith that he is going to do what he has promised to do. How can Abraham have faith in the promise and obey God at the same time? He does. We see verse 3. The command comes and Abraham gets up and he goes. He doesn't, you know, we don't, as far as we know, there's no dialogue, there's no back and forth, there's no God, I don't want to do this, how could you make me do this? He just gets up and, and goes. But then verse 5 you know, he, he gets there with the servants and he says, you all wait here. The boy and I will go up the mountain and we will come back to you. He has faith. He believes that he's going to come back down with Isaac somehow. Verse 8, Isaac asks, where's, where's the lamb? God himself will provide the lamb. He has faith. Verses 9 and 10. By the way, every commentator notes on just the remarkable storytelling of, of the author in this chapter. You notice that at the beginning of the chapter, it's, everything's moving quickly, right? Quick pace. Three days later, this happens. They go up the mountain. And then by the time you get to the last few verses, it's like every single action is painstakingly zoomed in on. You get to verses 9 and 10. Abraham built the altar, arranged the wood, bound his son, placed him on the altar, reached out and took the knife. Faith, but also obedience. How is Abraham able to hold together faith and obedience? Well, fortunately, Hebrews 11 tells us. It comments on this passage. And it says, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, so the promise had already come, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. How was he able to do this? Hebrews says, he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. He's, saying, he's so convinced that God is going to bless him through Isaac like he promised, that even if he sacrifices him, he believes that God is going to raise him from the dead and give him back. And so the author of Hebrews says, figuratively speaking, he did come back from the dead. It's interesting, isn't it? Hebrews 11 says that, figuratively speaking, Abraham got Isaac back from the dead. Genesis 20, 20, uh, 22 verse 4 says they arrived at the mountain on the third day. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but for three days, the child of the promise was as good as dead, and on the third day, he comes back to life. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? 
Abraham, because of his remarkable ability to hold together faith and obedience, passes this test. The angel of the Lord appears, says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God since, for because you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham's radical and total obedience is the proof of what? That he fears God. And notice, just another aside, what does the angel of the Lord say? He says, he says now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your only son from me. The, the angel of the Lord is an appearance of God himself coming to Abraham saying, stop, don't hurt the boy. I know that you fear me. You have faith in me. Do, Abraham's obedience is made possible because of his faith, which is made possible by the fact that he fears the Lord. Do we fear the Lord still? Um, what does this mean? It's, it's an interesting topic in scripture. Origin, church father, in, in this sermon on uh, Genesis 22, an amazing sermon. He says, who of you do you suppose will hear the voice of an angel saying, now I know that you fear God because you spared not your son or your daughter or your wife or you spared not your money or the honors of the world or the ambitions of the world, but you despised all things and have counted all things rubbish that you may gain Christ. Or who, do you, who of you do you expect to hear? You have sold all things and have given to the poor and have followed the word of God. Who of you do you think will hear a word of this kind? Do we fear the Lord like Abraham? Do we still care about this? Are we attuned to his power and his glory and his holiness and his mercy and compassion in such a way that it draws forth wonder and awe and love? The, the fear of the Lord is an interesting thing. We hear that phrase and we think, why does the Bible want us to be terrified of God? That's actually not what it means. It, it, it's this sort of... Imagine, it's a sort of combination. Imagine if you're like standing at the precipice of the, of the Grand Canyon and you're just overwhelmed by how huge it is and how small you are. And now combine that with like, it's your wedding day and the doors in the back of the sanctuary just opened and you're seeing your bride walk down the aisle for the first time and thinking how overwhelmingly beautiful she is and how fortunate you are. Like the combination of those feelings is what the Bible means when it talks about the fear of the Lord. It's awe, it's wonder, it's reverence, yes, but it's not, it's not terror. It's it's the, the feeling that the children get in Narnia, right, when they see Aslan for the first time, and they're somehow simultaneously, like, terrified of him and yet drawn to him. They, they can't take their eyes off him. That's what the Bible means by the fear of God. And I think perhaps faith and obedience might be challenging for some of us right now because there's no wonder or awe or fear of God in our lives, and there's no wonder or awe or fear of God in our lives because we're, we're not paying attention to him. Because our eyes and our hearts and our minds are so focused on our own lives and our own feelings and our own aspirations at work or at home or whatever that we're not actually stopping and thinking about God. I can promise you, I can promise you that if we fix our attention on God, we will fear him in the right sense of that word. And if we fear him, we will be able, like Abraham, to hold together the paradox of faith in God's promises and radical obedience to his commands. That's the, the test that Abraham passes. What about God's test? When I was uh, in fourth grade, I, my, uh, my math career, which isn't something I talk about often because, you know, it, 
I didn't really have a math career. But I, I, I really was good at math in elementary school, and then when I had to start showing my work, everything went downhill from there. But in fourth grade, we would do these things called board races. I don't know if any of you all did these, where there would be a series of problems written on the board, multiplication and division, and two students would go up and race to see who could correctly finish them all first, which seems like the kind of thing that you may not do in schools today, but we did. Uh, and I was so good at board races. I just dominated every other kid to the extent that one day, a student said to our teacher, you should do a board race against Taylor. I was nine years old, okay? And this puts the teacher in an awkward spot, right? Because she can't very well say, no, I'm not going to do that because then she looks like she's scared of something. But if she does it and she loses, it makes her look bad. And in the end, indeed, she did lose. I, I beat the teacher in a board race in fourth grade. This story at the first read almost gives you the sense that the student comes out better than the teacher, that Abraham passes his test, but that God isn't left looking very good at the end of this passage. Is that true? Abraham's test was, do you fear God? But God's test in this passage is, are you just like all the other gods? Are you no different than all the other gods? Uh, in the ancient Near East, which is the, the culture of the Old Testament, uh, child sacrifice was not unheard of. In many cultures, among many nations, uh, it would be an act of desperation in a sort of military, you know, in a battle, in a war, like the, they're losing, and so the king of the nation offers up his son as a sacrifice to the gods to try to sway them uh, to win the war. But in particular, among the Canaanites, the nearest neighbors of the Israelites, indeed those who uh, were in the land that God had promised to Israel, regularly practiced child sacrifice. There's debate whether they sacrifice to a god named Moloch, or if that's actually like the name of the sacrifice, but it's, it's pretty agreed on by historians today that the Canaanites regularly practiced child sacrifice. In other words, Abraham and the original readers of Genesis would have been quite familiar with the practice of putting children through the fire, in the words of Scripture. And that leaves Abraham and the original readers no doubt wondering, is, is Yahweh just the same as all the other gods? One of my favorite contemporary Christian thinkers is a guy named Andy Crouch, and he was interviewed on a, a podcast recently with another thinker that I like, John Mark Comer, and so when I saw they were doing this podcast episode, I quickly listened to it, and one of the things that Crouch said in that podcast that stuck with me was that the greatest demand of an idol or a false god is not that you give your own life, but that you give them the life of your children. They weren't talking about ancient deities. They were talking about the contemporary Western obsession with technology. <laughs> and it strikes me that we would be wrong-headed to look down our noses at the ancient practices of these people because all of the, the most significant idols of the contemporary West demand the same thing of us. They demand it in a different way. But consider... The, the sort of Mount Rushmore of American idols. Technology, pleasure, freedom, and work, career, success. And by the way, um, <clears throat> I try not to be like an offensive preacher. Some, some guys, I think, revel in being offensive preachers. I might step on your toes in the next few minutes, and I'm not doing it on purpose or to be funny, um, but we're talking about the biggest idols in our day. And so I would say, if the shoe fits, wear it. Uh, first, which I just alluded to, technology. 
sociologist Jonathan Haidt, who's written several uh, influential books. He has a book coming out in February called The Anxious Generation, in which he charts the rise of adolescent lack of mental, or we should say the decline of adolescent mental health <clears throat> with the arrival of the smartphone, and in particular social media on smartphones, and shows that in particular among adolescent girls, the rates of anxiety and depression and suicidality have doubled since the arrival of smartphone social media, and makes the case that quite literally Instagram is, is harming and in some cases killing our young girls. And yet we all continue to just feed the beast <laughs> as if there were nothing problematic about it. Uh, pleasure. What we want is the, the maximal amount of pleasure with the minimal amount of effort. And nowhere in the world is that more represented than in pornography, which is a bigger industry than all of the professional sports uh, leagues put together, which continues to blow my mind. How much content is non-consensual and abusive and involves minors, we will never be able to know because it literally can't be tracked. And yet, it continues to be fooled, fueled, on the one hand, in the content by adolescent girls and in the consumption largely by adolescent boys. And to be clear, I view both of those groups as victims. Both, nobody's being helped. Everybody's being harmed. Our children, most of all. What about our, our love of freedom? We're in a day and <clears throat> a moment where both sides of the political aisle can point to the other and say that your most cherished freedom is killing children. I'm not here right now to, to navigate the complexities of those claims. Uh, there's conversations worth having, but maybe they both have a point. What about work? This is the most socially acceptable, right? Uh, career, success. We go and chase our dreams at the office, burning both ends of the candle, uh, working 50, 60, 70 hours a week, and often in the process neglecting our children. And we, ironically, we justify it by saying, well, they won't have this nice home. They won't have these nice vacations. They won't be able to go to these nice schools if we don't keep doing that. They would rather have your presence and attention. <laughs> Than those things. This isn't a parenting sermon, but the point is, our idols, no less than those of 4,000 years ago, demand more and more and more from us, and chiefly our children, and they give us less and less in return. And the powerful question of Genesis 22 is, is the God of the Bible no different than that? And the glorious good news in the answer is that he could not be more different. We get to verses 13 and 14. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. In the end, the Lord did not demand a sacrifice. He made the sacrifice. In the end, the Lord did not require humanity to make a sacrifice, but he came with the sacrifice. And this is not just true in Genesis 3, as we saw a few weeks ago. It's not just true in Genesis chapter 22. It's true in a much more ultimate sense, in the sense that all these stories are pointing to, which is in Jesus Christ. Listen, the, this, here's the story of the Bible in two minutes. 
God creates everything and everything's good and he creates humanity, which is better than everything else and is meant to be in this unique and intimate relationship with him who is the source of all life and joy and love and goodness. And instead, humanity turns away. It says, we're not interested in you, God. We're gonna do our own thing. And in turning away from the source of life, they turn to death. It's both the punishment and the natural consequence of what the Bible calls sin. Now, somebody has to pay the price for that. Somebody has to die or else God would be unjust. And this creates what St. Athanasius calls the divine dilemma. He says, God did not want to put humanity to death. He created them for life. It would be absurd that God would want to put all of humanity to death when he created them for life. But on the other hand, he had to be just. He couldn't just wink at injustice and evil and sin in the world. And so somebody had to pay the penalty. Somebody had to die. And the only solution is that God would come to earth himself. He would take up a human body and a human nature. Why? Not just to teach. Jesus is not just a great moral teacher who was on some higher plane that connects people to God. He was not just a good, inspiring example. He came chiefly to die. He says this, right? The Gospel of Mark, the the thesis statement of Mark is the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, Athanasius is helpful. He says, the reason of his coming down was because of us, and that our transgression called forth the loving kindness of the Son, that the Lord should both make haste to help us and appear among us. For of his becoming incarnate, that means his putting on human nature, we were the object. For our salvation, he dealt so lovingly as to appear and be born even in a human body. Why a human body? Because all were under penalty of the corruption of death, he gave his body over to death in the place of all, so that all having died in him, death and corruption might be undone. God came to pay the price for our sin. God came to undo our death and our corruption. God came with the sacrifice. And the amazing thing in the end is that just as the angel of the Lord could look at Abraham and say, now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld your only son from me, we can look at God and say, now we know that you love us because you have not withheld your only son from us. Again, Origen in his sermon on Genesis 22, behold God dealing with people in magnificent generosity. Abraham offered God a mortal son who was not put to death, God delivered to death an immortal son for humanity. Abraham offers his mortal son who does not have to be put to death, but God, for the sake of humanity, offers his immortal son and puts him to death to pay the price for human sin. Consider the similarities and the differences in Isaac and in Christ. Both are children of the promise. Isaac is the promised child to Abraham. Jesus is the promised child to Eve. Way back in Genesis 3, I'm gonna send one of your offspring who's going to fix everything that you have broken. In time, on a particular day, God says to Abraham, go and sacrifice your son. But from eternity past, God the Father and Son and Spirit have agreed that the Son would go to earth and offer himself as a sacrifice for humanity. Isaac had no idea what was happening. But Jesus lived his whole life knowing the purpose, the chief purpose of me coming here is to die for people who hate me. (laughs) Isaac has the wood for the sacrifice strapped to his back as he climbs the mountain. Jesus carries his wooden cross up the mountain. Isaac asks his father, 
Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And he gets reassurance. God's going to provide it. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane crying, tears of agony. Father, if there's any way, can this cup pass from me? He gets no such reassurance. He knows there's going to be no lamb as a substitute because he is the lamb who is the substitute. Right before Abraham sacrifices Isaac, the angel of the Lord speaks and says, don't do it. But Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he hears nothing. And the only sound is the voices of the crowds mocking him, saying he, he trusts in God, let God save him. But on the third day, The child of the promise has been as good as dead for three days, and he's given back to Abraham. And on the third day, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, rises from the grave, victorious over sin and over death and over hell and over the devil. And he does it for us so that we who have faith in him might also share in his new life. If that's true, if all that's true, then how could we ever doubt that God is going to fulfill his promise to bless us? If, that, if all of that is true, if God would spare no expense, if he would pay such a high price to love us and to save us, what obedience would we not offer him? Wouldn't we trust, like Abraham does, that our obedience to God won't undermine God's blessing of us? As Paul says in Romans 8, He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else?